Welcome to the Get the Knack Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I'm coming to you from the Get the Knack Podcast studio here in Ocean Shores, Washington. And I have a very, very special guest this week. He is an author and researcher, and he lives in Cornwall, England. His name is Matthew Banks. Matthew, welcome to the program. Hi, Jerry. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, full disclosure, we uh, we kind of travel in weird circles, those of us who are into uh, the horror genre, and uh, our mutual friend Erin Chapman, who's been on the show a couple of times, uh, and I've been on her Morbid Planet show on YouTube, uh, introduced us as uh, folks who have common interests, and it turns out uh, when it comes to classic horror films, we definitely do have common interests. Yes, we do. So... You've written, you know, you've written extensively on classic horror uh, books, uh, papers, uh, you know, in and even yeah. submitting submitting for awards and that kind of thing. How did you get into classic horror in the first place? Oh, right. We're going to travel back X amount of years in time. When I was a child, um, you used to, I used to get these um, horror horror cards with a purple strand, and they were jokey. And you had Frankenstein, the Wolfman, um, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I think you had like four cards and a stick of gum, and they were two p. And I had hundreds of them, and that's what really started it off. And then my dad, my dad had a very dark sense of humour, and he thought it would be fun. Bear in mind, I was about three or four, so it's looking back, it could be seen funny in a in a dark way now but back then it was completely traumatizing he used to have this tight fitting skull mask and he used to chase me around the house wearing it and i suppose that really embedded horror for me and then many years later um he ran a hotel and on, on a wet saturday afternoon he used to um show films to the hotel guest kids and I used to sit in with him, and he played um, a Bella Lugosi compilation film. Um, and I'm quite distinct on this. It was definitely a compilation film. And, and that just got me hooked. And then my friends gave me a copy of Dennis Gifford's A Pictorial History of Horror. And it just really built up from there. So I'd say from the age of four to what I am now, which we won't go into, <laughs> I've had this huge love of horror. No, that's great. And I think, you know, I think for a lot of us, it's childhood that does it. I, I saw Dan Curtis's Dracula when I was four. And I was hooked on the Dracula character at that point. And then later on, watching horror films on a Saturday afternoon or late on a Friday night, and you get introduced to all those monsters, right? You get the mummy, the yeah. Dracula, and Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and and then again, creature from, from uh, the Black Lagoon. And then when you have this interest as an adult and you start researching it, yeah, it, it's really amazing, first of all, that any of these films got made. And, yeah, and right, especially once the Hayes Code was enacted in Hollywood. And I don't know if you you had something similar uh, in England or not, but I I, I doubt it. Um, so a lot of a lot um, of horror in the '60s starts coming over from from England uh, from Hammer Studios and Amicus. I think a lot of the Hammer stuff 
with regards to editing for the states it was just cutting out a little a bit of gore here a bit of boob there rather than whole scenes being shredded but don't quote me on that but that's what i think with the haze code and the studios desperately trying to get around it um when, when it came to um there's this big thing that Britain had this ban on horror films in the UK in, in the 1930s. It's simply not true. All they did was they tightened up the rules so that, that kids couldn't go into the cinema to see the film. So, cause before that, like my dad would say, like when he was six or seven, he could get in and see, say, uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman or something like that. Whereas that was put a stop to, at a young age, so you you had to be twelve plus to uh, or accompanied by an adult to see, because they brought in the H certificate. That's interesting because you know obviously we have the Motion Picture Association of America that rates all does all the ratings, and I remember um, in the eighties there was a a film that came out around Halloween called Trick or Treat, and it was an R rated film. I was seventeen, my friend was sixteen. But there was such a, a line and a crush um, that the ticket taker let my friend in anyway. And it was it was interesting, you know, because some theaters, they really enforced this. And, yeah. and, and some turned a blind eye to it and that kind of thing. But, you know, when it, when it came to watching horror films, I think a lot of us got introduced to it in the 1980s with, with video rentals. And, and we'll get into, yeah. into that in a second. I want to go back though and talk about a lot of the early, early horror, because I think I, I'm a big believer in this. You can't know where you're going unless you know where you've come from. Exactly. And, you know, I think anybody who's a fan of horror today, we all owe this tremendous debt to the Carl Emily juniors of the world, to the, uh, Lon Chaney seniors and Todd Brownings and people like that uh, who who came out of the silent era in the 20s. And one of the things I find really, really interesting is that horror films are some of the earliest things ever put on celluloid. Yes. Right? I mean, uh, when, you... when they start making films, horror films, it was like a natural. I think the early, I don't know whether you'd count it as a, a horror film per se, but the earliest is, and I'm going to get his name wrong and everyone's going to jump on me, it's George Melee's um, The Haunted Palace, Stroke Haunted House, Stroke Haunted Castle, Stroke Haunted, whatever you want it to be. Um, short film with the little devil and ghosts and stuff. What year was that, so, Matthew? That was 1897. Yeah, and, and it's amazing because then by 1910, we actually have a silent adaptation of Frankenstein. If I just dive into the Book of Doom. The Book I of tell Doom. You, uh, the Book of Doom. I tell a lie, The Devil's Castle, La Mana di Diabol, um, a.k.a. The Horticle, 1896. I do beg your pardon. Oh, <laughs> no, no... Uh, begging of pardon or apology necessary. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting that, you know, when the motion picture was invented, that horror stories were, were some of the first things put on film. 
And also at the time, um, they did do or cover a lot of fairy tales as well. Mm. Because um, in the chapter in, in my book on I Married a Witch, I tried to do a, chrono- a chronology of witches in the film from the beginning of film up until I Married a Witch. And, and that was really insightful, um, trying to f- categorise, because like you had so many film companies release a film and then go bust. Oh, they had the same title as as another film, and you had to work out whether it was the same film or a different film or and what have you. Um, but a lot of the stuff that came up when I was researching that was was fairy tales. It's it's um, interesting because when you think about it, a lot of early horror came straight from literature. And obviously yes. fairy tales, you know, go from spoken tradition to written tradition over over the centuries. And, um, you know, there's a lot of dark fairy tales out there, too. And a lot of that got put to film uh, early on. Um, one of my favorite early horror films, and one of the reasons it is one of my favorites, and another reason why I love classic horror, was 1925's Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney Sr. I oh, s- you can't can't beat that can you no i saw it in a theater small art house theater in my hometown in upstate new york with a live orchestra oh my god how marvelous was that it was fantastic i had to be about 11 or 12 years old and um one of my teachers knew i i liked classic horror films um and and you know got tickets or found a way to get tickets and and it was spectacular uh, experience and that's part another reason why again you know childhood informs these tastes um, I get into arguments with people all the time who think Phantom of the Opera is a romantic musical I said no no it's a 1925 <laughs> horror film <clears throat> so uh, you know. <laughs> But, you know, going all the way back to that, right, to me, that's when Universal kicks off the, what I consider the first cinematic universe, unintentional cinematic universe. Um, And from 1925 to 1956, Universal rules uh, the horror universe. But as we were talking before I hit the record button, there's so many films that crop up in the 30s that are darker, scarier, um, they find ways to get around the, the Hayes Code uh, with these themes. Um, but, you know, we end up with a lot of great stars coming out of this time period. Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, um, Lionel Atwill, a lot of uh, Dwight Fry. A lot of, yeah. a, lot of uh, a lot of great stars come out of that, that time period. So what, when you look at the 20s and 30s, where is your head with with classic horror and what are some of your favorites and 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 why are they your favorites um um that's a good one i mean i i i really love um bella lugosi's dracula i i know that the highlights from that film really are dwight fry uh edward van sloan and and Lugosi himself, who who does carry the film. Um, I quite like the George uh, Melford's version of Dracula, but it would have been so much better if he had had Lugosi in the role. 
than Carlos Valos, who who's just rubbish. And it didn't make sense because he they did use shots of Lugosi in that film. Mm-hmm. And they don't look exactly the same, so you can see the difference. Um, I'm, I'm looking at my book, because I'm upstairs, so I'm looking at my bookshelf looking, oh my God, what are my favourite horror films? But all the ones that I've got, I've got because I really like them. Right. I mean... Same here. I don't. Um, I don't keep uh, keep DVDs on the shelves of, of films I don't like. Um, but when it comes to Bela Lugosi's Dracula, what's really really interesting was that they didn't want him to be Dracula on film. He played him on stage, and uh, for whatever reason, his accent or who knows what other reasons, they didn't want him to play Dracula. He ends up getting not only getting the role, but turning in what I call a genre and character defining performance. Um, and also that role, that, that particular film did save at the time universal from bankruptcy. Um, there's been a lot of, I mean, in Aaron as to why they did or didn't want the Gozi for the role. Um, along with, um, Dr. Gary Rhodes, I've come to the same conclusion that Lon Chaney senior was never up for the role because at the time of his death, he was, um, suing universal over the use of his voice in a film that he he did not give them permission for. Um, Whether anyone else could have carried the role at the time, I don't know, because Lugosi so personified Dracula that I don't think anyone else could have touched it. Indeed, like when you get um, later versions of Dracula, it's just... Not, no matter how smooth a performance uh, John Carradine is in House of Frankenstein, straight House of Dracula, it's just not Dracula, even though he's called Dracula. Um, or even even could, Lon Chaney Jr. in in Son of Dracula. It you know what I but the thing but, I appreciated but, about them was they they didn't try to be Lugosi. No. No, but when he came back for Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in '48 despite the fact that obviously he'd aged a great deal, he slipped so beautifully back into that role. It's though it had never left him. And I know he's doing um, stock tours and summer tours and of it and edited tours of, of the play and what have you. But yes. as he said, I think in 51, Dracula never ends for him, but I don't think he treated the character of Dracula the same way as Karloff treated Frankenstein monster as his friend. I think I I think Lugosi saw the role more as an albatross around his neck rather than a blessing, and that was probably a, a failing on his part. Yeah, and I think that you know that had a lot to do with him turning down the role of Frankenstein's monster, um, which famously ends up going to uh, to Karloff, and you know he didn't want to wear the makeup. He didn't feel like he could. Uh, you know, perform uh, well in the role and shall, didn't want to be shall typecast. We dis- shall we discuss a conspiracy theory here? Of course. Why not? Right. Um, it, it only came out later that, um, Bella Lugosi didn't like people, um, who were gay. Interesting. That, that, that's a couple of interviews that I can't give you the name of the person because my books are downstairs. 
um, and they said that he that he would not have been friends with, say, someone like Edward D. Wood Jr. had he known what he was like. So I'm wondering whether he he got out of doing the Frankenstein film because um, Carl Emmy Jr. initially wanted him to be Doctor Frankenstein before the monster. Interesting. So I don't don't know the ins and outs of it, but Lugosi obviously lost lost the role so could it have been because obviously uh, james whale w- was homosexual and, and quite blatantly homosexual yes. which would have gone to the gone against the masculinity of, of, of who lugosi was and maybe he just couldn't bring himself to work with somebody that flamboyant that's an interesting Theory. I won't even call it a conspiracy theory. It's a, it's a very interesting theory, and it would make a lot of sense because Universal was printing up posters with Lugosi's yes. name on them. And what I find interesting is is you know uh, Karloff is, isn't even in the uh, the opening credits for for Frankenstein. It's you know a question mark who plays the, the yeah. monster. Um, yeah, that's that's really really interesting. And I think what, what's great about Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein is considered probably the greatest of all of these monster movies made in 1935. Whale didn't even want to do the film. And no. and uh, it's interesting that the bride is the only universal monster that does not commit a murder. Yes. And uh, Elsa Lanchester was, was absolutely brilliant in the role. Yes. She, that, that brief scene with her where she's realizes what's going on it really shows that although although we know the frankenstein monster had an abnormal brain put in his hers was not abnormal so therefore she was still human if you see what i mean yeah so therefore that i think that when she wake that awakening if we like and that revulsion is the human side of the person that she once was realizing what's going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that, that I noticed in, in a deep dive that I did on, on universal horror was one of the things that they started doing. And I think it started with Dracula's daughter that all of a sudden, maybe not all of a sudden, maybe it was a natural thing. We start treating the monsters as if they're mentally ill or addicted or, you know, so we bring in, we bring in these scientists, these doctors, these psychiatrists or, or whatever they are. And it always goes wrong, right? Because these are monster movies, but it's always, let's treat your addiction. Let's treat what's wrong with your brain. Did you ever notice that in, in these films? Because, you know, once we start getting into the house of films, Dracula doesn't want to drink blood anymore. He wants to be normal. Um, and, you know, obviously we have Lon Chaney Jr. as the tortured Larry Talbot who just doesn't want to be the wolfman, doesn't want to kill anybody anymore. But it just seems like we're, we're instead of recognizing that they're all monsters, they're all non-human, they're, they're uh, mentally ill and can be cured. It's funny you say because in in my chapter on Dracula's daughter, I point out is she actually a vampire? Mm. Because unlike 
in Lugosi's Dracula where you see him zooming in on a victim, whether he's crawling up Renfield's body or um, going towards uh, Lucy's neck or whatever. In Dracula's Daughter, you never actually see her attack anyone, even in the classic scene where where Lily drops her straps. And then she says, don't come any closer, don't come any closer. The camera goes up to the mask and she screams, but you don't see what happens. Do you think maybe that you, that was when the, the Hayes Code was in full effect? Because I think what that goes in into effect in 34 and that film was made in 36? Um, I don't know because everyone goes on that, that Countess Zaleska is, is the um, first female lesbian vampire and and like and they use the attack on Lily as their evidence. And then when she looks at Margaret Churchill, when she's lying on the chaise long at the castle, there's the, the long, slow, lingering kiss. Well, in that case, you'd have to take that mentality and go all the way back to Dracula for when Dracula pushes his brides away after he's drugged Renfield. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. He, he's and more it, of a victim of, uh, you know, control and convenience because they're trying to, you know, explain away his influence over Renfield through the rest of the film, right? Because yeah. um, I, I was asked to, to write um, an article on that, but I couldn't find enough archival material to, to back up what was wanted so it went to the side but if you look at Dracula's daughter she is really under Sandor's influence Sandor what do you see in my eyes death <laughs> complete and utter control from him over her and the majority of her victims if we go from the beginning of the film is men right you know and and, and she doesn't want Lily. She doesn't want Margaret Churchill. She wants Dr. Garth. True, true. Yeah. I I mean, we can... People will always look back at things and and find things that they want to see or, uh, you know, project on. Uh, I do do think it's... um, you know, in, in Dracula's daughter, just from watching that scene, I, I do think there's, you know, some overt, uh, female, att- female attraction going on there. But at the same time, you're right. You can go back and look at Lugosi and, and Renfield, um, played by Dwight Fry and look at that as, as uh, homoerotic as well. Right. Uh, exactly. I, I, yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. We don't talk about it in the, in the same vein. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we're going to take it after the Hayes Code and, and and things blatantly out there in your face, but not in your face, you've just got to take uh, 1936 is um, The Invisible Ray. Which, unfortunately, it's, I've never seen The Invisible Ray. You've never seen The Invisible no, Ray? No, I haven't. Oh, Jerry, what can I say? I gotta hunt it down now. Um, basically, Karloff plays this scientist who is married to a beautiful woman, um, and he finds this radioactive atom that 
if he touches people, they die automatically. Uh, and he's and he goes to the jungle and he's surrounded by all these half naked black servants. And 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 then he gets pissed off that his wife falls in love uh, with someone else because he's never laid a finger on her because he's much older and he still lives with mummy. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Yeah, sure do. <laughs> yeah, but it was just so blatant. And you sit there and you watch the film and you really enjoy the film because, like, Lugosi plays a goodie for a change. Oh, which is very rare. Uh, and it, 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 A, the film shows the versatility of Lugosi. Um, it's definitely a Karloff film, whereas uh, The Black Cat was Karloff, The Raven was utterly Lugosi's crowning moment, and then you have The Invisible Ray, which is the, the three big ones. I'm going to have to and, watch it. I've got it up on uh, on my screen on IMDb, looking at the uh, IMDb entry for it. I'm going to have to hunt that down. Um, you know, we were talking before, and, you know, um, you know you've written about uh, the, the Black Cat. Um, yes. Which is, a, is just a fantastic, wonderfully dark film. Um, and... Uh, no spoilers because I think everybody should should watch that that movie and it's an example of something kind of outside the, this monster verse that was made around the same time that that doesn't get enough attention doesn't get enough love uh, as as you know a wonderful early horror film and you see a lot of influence on later movies because of this. Um, one of the uh, films that I watched uh, with Karloff uh, that I absolutely found fascinating was uh, I got to find the title now, the exact title. And what's interesting is his character is so you you hear him in this movie deliver his lines, and the only thing I kept thinking about was this is the Grinch. This is this is the same voice of. Um, you know, the narrator and how the Grinch stole Christmas is really interesting. Yeah. And if I can find it, I'll tell you what it is. And you're going to, you're going to go, Oh yeah. Um, let's see. Why can't I find it? Um, so, Oh, the body snatcher in 1945. Yes. And you know, in, in the forties, they weren't making a whole lot of scary movies because, because of world war two. So to have a really good horror film come out of the forties, that wasn't house of Frankenstein or house of Dracula was, was pretty rare. Um, but the body snatcher is a fantastic film. Uh, yes. I write about that extensively in, in the book. Um, it's an extended piece that hasn't been published before. No, it hasn't been published before. But um, what I try and do is I I get a film like oh let's go back to the beginning um, when Eric McNaughton was about to um, bring his We Belong Dead magazine back to life I contacted him and I asked if I could submit some materials to him and he very kindly had faith in me and said yes so. I submitted the Black Captain, which was the first piece that I'd ever had published that actually got a, a, a front cover as well. Oh, wow. Um, and then I did The Raven for them, which I think was for issue 13. And there are about six or seven versions of The Invisible Ray. 
that was originally written for him but was never published. <laughs> so there is a version of that in my book. And I also did The Body Snatcher, um, which that was great fun. To, I have to say, Jerry, that was really great fun to research. It's, uh, it's an interesting film. It, it really is. And, you know, it really speaks to uh, the great lengths people would go go to, you know, at the dawn of modern medicine, trying to, to expand knowledge, but, you know, did it in a, a back alley, dark way. And it's, it's almost selling your soul to the devil in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I say at the end of the article that the film still stands out as one of the best horror films of the 1940s. Karloff gives one of his most chilling portrayals for which he should have been Oscar nominated. And Robert Wise showed that he knew how to make a good riveting film. His next foray into horror stroke supernatural would be 1963's The Haunting. I think had Wise continued doing horror films, it, we, he could have given us the ultimate horror film. Interesting that it's the same person uh, with both those films because The Haunting is considered one of the, the greatest ghost stories ever filmed. I've, I've written about that extensively too. Um, have it, you ever read really, the book, though? Have you ever read yes. Shirley Jackson's novel? Okay. Yeah. I, 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 um, when I did my degree, my dissertation, um, or the um, theory part of my dissertation was on the haunted house. So uh, I did uh, the house, the house next door, the haunting, um, the shining, which I had to read and sort of like what have you. But the, the shining is more about King's addiction, whereas the haunting is is Eleanor having a breakdown or is she so worn out by life that she's getting herself deluded but at the, at the last bit when she's driving away it's almost like no, she doesn't she doesn't want to die but yet she still dies yeah the so, you know the ending of the book really really confused me and the film just crystallizes the ending when she crashes into the tree and um you know, at, at the very end of the film and, and ends her life. And, and it's really interesting how that car was, was kind of like, you know, threaded through the entire film and the entire book because, yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was the family car and, and she took it without permission. And then she ends up, you know, using it as the vehicle of her demise. I love puns. Sorry. Um, <laughs> you're listening to the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I am talking to author and researcher Matthew Banks, all the way from deep, dark Cornwall, England. Matthew, um, let, I should have done this at the top of the show. Let's let's tell the audience exactly uh, what you've written over over uh, the the course of uh, of your time as a, as an author and a researcher and a uh, historian and and all the all the things that that go into uh, what what uh, makes you uh, this person who loves classic horror and feels compelled to write about it. What have you written? Um, well, my book, which is out published by Bear Banner Media, is called "Where Does Imagination End and Reality Begin." re-examining the horror classic it's out in hardback and paperback 
and it is a collection of essays of um, what you'd call director's cuts. I call it a writer's cut, but a director's cut of um, some published um, articles and some unpublished articles um, published in a way that I wanted them to, to be seen in, in book form, if that makes sense. Um, I'm very fortunate in, in um, the people that I've approached like uh, and got published by like Eric McNaughton with uh, We Belong Dead, Alan Bryce with The Dark Side magazine, Don and Vicky, uh, I can't pronounce the surname, but they're going to hate me for this. Just let me dive in. Uh, did, 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 uh, can't read. Uh, uh, Smell Aradi, I think I pronounced that right, of Scary Monsters magazine have been absolutely fantastic. Um, um, and what happened was when we had the first lockdown, I had all this stuff that had been out there and published. Uh, Dracula's Daughter had been, uh, which was published by Scary Monsters of the Movies magazine, um, had been Ronza nominated. And it, I and I know from a historic point of view that there's a sort of ephemeral thing with magazines that they're there and then they're gone. And I wanted something lasting and I wanted something to be a memoriam to my father Um so I sent Ben Omar um, uh, oh, just a prelim letter saying, would you be interested? And I sent Dracula's daughter um, as, as a sample of my work. And he came back and said, yes, with a contract. And then it was a case of getting all the stuff that I had in various hard drives and what condition it was in, choosing the best pieces of work to use. Um, and then I got that all together and then I had a little bit of a brainstorm when I suddenly realised that uh, 1942's I Married a Witch, although it's classed as uh, a comedy romance, is at its very heart a horror film. And I thought, nobody says that about this film. I've always viewed it as a horror film. And I thought, sugar lumps, I've got to write about this. I've got to put it out there that this is a horror film. You've got witches that start off being burnt at the stake although you don't see it, it you, you see the smoke so therefore it's all implied and even though it's funny she burns down a hotel t- to get human form her father threatens to kill her quite a few times you know and so and what have you, and it is a horror film they come back to cast their revenge even though they've had revenge for centuries because of her curse and I thought and then that led on to me trying to do this chronology of witches and witchcraft in film, which is like at the end of the chapter. And then the 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 film, uh, the films that are in in the book, are like I said, bar one thing, which is where does imagination end and reality begin? Night of the Demon, stroke casting the rooms of comparison. Yeah, I thought it was interesting you you uh, you included Night of the Demon because uh, I only watched it beginning to end very very recently, and I had seen clips of it. And you know, um, what a fantastic movie! Well, in that article, Jerry, I compared the 
literature Carswell to the theatrical Carswell um, and, and, and show the difference because between the two you get an overall picture of the character. And I thought that was really interesting how they went with him and in the film and how he was just as much a victim of the black magic that he performed as he was in dishing it out. Very much so. And I, you know, there were a lot of people who, who thought, you know, that they shouldn't show the demon. They shouldn't show the monster. I was really happy that they that they showed the monster uh, and, you know, it really brought it home that, that this wasn't like an ethereal experience. It was a real physical manifestation of, of something. And, you know, the end scene of the film is just spectacular. Um, and, you know, part of you is like, well, is the demon real or do you get run over by a train? You know, because of, because of the sound effects that were used and, and that kind of thing. But um, but no, I thought it was a, a fabulous movie. Well done. The only the only thing I thought was interesting, and I, and I almost call it comical, was the, the floating piece of paper that had the incantation on it that uh, uh, that had to be, you know, burned to summon the demon or whatever yeah. it was to, to sick the demon on, on whoever the uh, intended victim was. The, I thought that was a little comical, but... The whole the whole film itself. I loved how they mixed hard science with with the the metaphysical. I thought that was spectacularly done. I really love that film. I really love the end shot of the railway station, and it's completely empty, thus implying that did the demon get them all in the end, right? Or did this happen in you know in his head? You know, so right. I mean, because in in your imagination or in a dream state, are you going to imagine railway passengers? Exactly. Or, or are you going to have that singular experience? Yeah, we can we can take all kinds of things from that. So let's kind of. So, oh, go ahead. I was going to say because you going back to what you asked earlier, what is my favorite horror film? That is my all time favorite horror film. Fair enough. And it's and it's a good one. It, it really is. I uh, like I said, I'd heard about it. I'd seen clips. You know, you watch documentaries about horror films, and it's always referenced. And I finally got a chance. Uh, I recorded it and and went back and, and watched it beginning to end, and 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 really enjoyed it. Um, you know, let's kind of go go. Um, let's talk a little bit about about the witches and haunted houses, right? Because I think. I think one of the things that I find really, really interesting about those two subgenres is um, early on, there's not a whole lot of films that that really uh, bring those those uh, two things home, right? I mean, the haunting in the early '60s is is the best of the bunch. Prior to uh, I think James Wan coming onto the scene recently. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of I don't know if we want to even call them haunted house films, but there's, you know, you have Amityville Horror, um, yeah, which is a spectacular film that goes off the rails at the end with the the pig in the window, and um, <laughs> right there's there's House, which you know, I tried to watch House recently. I saw it when, it when you know early on, and I tried to watch it recently. What a perfectly stupid, silly film that is, um, and but I. Uh, maybe you can speak to it a little better than I can, but I think, you know, the Conjuring universe has resurrected the haunted house film. Um, I, I'm going to be brutally, brutally naughty here and say, um, I haven't seen, seen it cause I don't really go for modern horror. All right. Fair enough. 
Um, I know I should see it and what have you, um, but I like to go back to their grandfathers, so to speak. And sure, you know, um, I I just did an article uh, which was Ronda nominated, so I'll get that one in uh, on Mark <laughs> of the Vamp on Mark of the Vampire, right? Um, for We Belong Dead Thirty. We, uh, and that was absolutely lovely to research. I've got enough material to do a director's cut of it. Yeah, I was I was impressed with the the research on that one. I, I want to discuss Mark of the Vampire uh, with you uh, in depth here in a second. But the other thing I'll say about about which films, right? So we go all the way. Most people's frame of reference who enjoy classic horror go all the way back to 1922's Haxon, right? Yes. And then, you know, it just, it seems like every couple of decades, there's a really, really good witch film. Black Sunday would be a good example, which is an excellent well, an movie. excellent film. Absolutely. And then it does seem like, you know, more recently, and if you haven't seen it, you need to see it, um, especially because of the historical context that it's filmed in. You have to, if you haven't seen The Witch uh, from A24 Studios, uh, you definitely need to see that film. Uh, no, I want I want to see that. It took me a couple of viewings, right? Because the, the trailer was fantastic. And, um, you know, they kept putting out better and better and better trailers. And when the film came out and saw it in the theater, whatever it was, the film experience wasn't very good. And I think a lot of it had to do with the, the period accurate dialogue. It had to do with um, how dark some of the scenes were you really couldn't see what was happening. Watch it yeah. on watch it on television, and it's a totally different experience and a better experience, believe it or not. And I'm a big film guy, I like going to movie theater. Um, yeah, and uh, I was really really surprised that I will like that film the more times I watch it. And uh, what it, you know over the years has been, uh, you know. Hammer Hammer did some stuff, I you know, and seems like witch films and and demonic possession, uh, blood on Satan's claw, uh, yes, is, is another film. another one. Yes, excellent film, because uh, we think of Hammer films and we think of Dracula and we think of uh, you know Frankenstein and and the Mummy reboots that they did, but they did some other really really good horror films in the from you know the late fifties into the early nineteen seventies, and and Blood on Satan's Claw was was an excellent film. Uh, but, uh, yeah, let's talk about Mark of the Vampire, because this is one of the things that you sent me when we first started talking a couple of weeks ago. And I was really impressed with the the research that you did. And so I'll let you kind of dive. You. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was there's nuggets in there that you're like, how in the hell did this guy find this? Um, my thing is. So the setup for me, there's another film and I wish I could remember the name of it. It's it's. It's billed as a werewolf film, but the whole idea is let's scare somebody to death and get their inheritance, right? Diabolique was another one of those types of films, uh, even though yes. there were no monsters. But, you know, let's scare somebody to death and get them out of the way, whether it's for money or, or you know, because somebody's having an affair or whatever. The thing about Mark of the Vampire, there's no damn vampires in it. Not any real ones, anyway. No. And... Um and you have Bella Lugosi playing a, a, a Dracula type character uh, in that film, but uh, I'll let you, you know, espouse on uh, on on that film. And correct me if I'm wrong; it was supposed to be a remake of London After Midnight, which is lost to the sands of time, unfortunately. Yes, it it was basically um, 
Todd Browning had his hand slapped after Freaks in uh, 1932. Um, and he really needed a, a, a box office hit with um, MGM. So he went to them and asked, or he put, to, he put forward, you know, remaking London After Midnight. Um, it's unclear, or I'm unclear as to why the, uh, the role of the vampire and the inspector was, was split between Lugosi and Barrymore. I don't know whether that was for box office or whether they didn't think Lugosi um, could handle both roles, although other films proved that he could. Um, but, um, it, the film also caused enough ruckus with Universal because... Every time Lugosi donned the cape to play a vampire, Universal would rattle their sabers and say, I'm going to sue you if you have him in this film as a vampire because he's playing Dracula, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it, they did that every time. They did the same thing uh, with Columbia when he made uh, The Return of the Vampire in 1943. Um, and I think that might have gone in the favour of them not having him as a real vampire so then Universal didn't have a leg to stand on <laughs> yeah that, that's, no. that's no it's it's interesting uh, because I know you know when you get to 1957 and Hammer starts rebooting all the Universal monster movies you know Universal still owned the Frankenstein makeup so they had to come up with a completely original makeup treatment for Christopher Lee as the monster because uh, they couldn't use Jack Pierce's designs. So it's, uh, you know, Same. totally, totally plausible what you're talking about, that every time Lugosi would put on a cape, they'd, they'd have a fit about it. I could totally see that. I mean, in 1932, Lugosi reprised the role of Dracula in a, a Hollywood on parade short with Betty Boop. But he's a he starts off as a waxwork, and it is Bella Lugosi as Dracula. So it's not Dracula; it's Bella Lugosi as Dracula. So, although um, that is counted as Lugosi being Dracula, he's not being Dracula; he's as Dracula. So, on the cinematic screen, he only appears as Dracula in Dracula in Thirty One, and in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in nineteen forty eight. Yep. And yet he is synonymous with the character. He is he is what we um, imitate today. If you're going to do a, a Dracula impression, you do Lugosi. You don't do anybody yep. else, which I find that really, really interesting. And, and so <laughs> this is the kind of jerk I am, right? Um, maybe you, you'd call me cheeky in, in the parlance for, from England. Um, so Dave Carger of, of Turner Classic Movies was introducing uh, Hammer's um, The Mummy. And, yeah. And he says, yes, this is a remake of the 1932 Boris Karloff film. And I immediately took to Twitter. I said, no, no, this is a remake of 1940s The Mummy's Hand. So, and, oh, yeah, thanks, great. Mike, I just don't understand how people can be in the business and not understand these things, that Karloff's Mummy was a one-off. There were no sequels yeah. to it. Um, and the thing about The Mummy is it's a retelling of Dracula a year yes. later. And even down to the opening music from Swan Lake. 
I, it, it just cracks me up that, you know, people who do this for a living don't do their research. Um, but, uh, and that's why I appreciate your research. And it was funny because when I sent you the blog I, I did on uh, the Universal Monsterverse, you pointed out that I was astute enough not to make the connection with Lon Chaney Sr. and Dracula. Because that was one of the things that when I was doing it, uh, researching that, obviously nowhere near as in-depth as, as what you're doing, I couldn't find any evidence of it. It didn't, there was, there was nothing that, cause I had seen or heard or read somewhere that he was even offered a contract to play Dracula and all this other stuff. And I, I just couldn't find it. It just didn't exist. So why, why would I perpetuate, you know, bad research and bad journalism from, yeah from 90 years ago? Um, so that has to be something on, on your end that when you going in as in depth as you do, I'm just writing blogs, right? So my, you know, I'm satisfying my own curiosity. So once that that's yeah, once that's satisfied, I will publish a piece. But in your case, I mean, you're going super in depth, and you know, I, I'm I'm blown away and fascinated by um, the level of material that you're able to find. Oh, I, I dig. I do dig deep, and I I cross reference everything. Um, this is why I love love research so much because i will find something and it will say it's, it was printed so, and i will try and hunt down that article or or whatever um the newspaper lugosi didn't really appear that well and carlos to be fair it didn't really appear that much in the movie magazines of the time believe it or not despite what they were doing um so you are reliant on um newspapers and and what have you i mean after the fiasco of dracula's daughter which lugosi was due to star in to start off with um he said he would never play dracula again surprise surprise he did but <laughs> and he did but you can you can see he was messed about from pillar to post over over being in that film and it's only and james whale did absolutely everything in his power to sabotage the film and why why would whale do that because because um because carl levy jr wanted james wanted james whale to direct the film and he didn't want to do that he wanted to do showboat mm. um and so from my understanding there was a bit of bribery on carl lemel jr's part of you can do showboat if you if you do this um but they wrote a script that was so completely and utterly unfilmable. You had the gozy character having young Newbell girls thrust at, uh, at visitors for their pleasure and what have you, and killing locals <laughs> that dared upset him. And all, uh, it was just completely and utterly unfilmable. And that's how uh, Wales sabotaged Dracula's daughter, which is why when it went into production in February um, 36, it, it still had no proper script. Hmm. Which is why if you watch the film, it's not a smooth... Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, which is disappointing. I, I mean, I don't know why they didn't later on think, right, we are going to go 
and um, remake it from from the original scripts. Um, and it's also interesting to note that maybe in in the thirties there was a, a vampire curse because Gloria Holden, despite whatever other role she ever did, is always remembered for Dracula's daughter. Um, just as Lugosi's always remembered for Dracula. It was funny. You, know, you had mentioned you know something else about Lugosi and in later performances. I always thought his best acting was done as Igor. Yes. Um, but I think I would stick with just 39's um, Son of Frankenstein because I think as he progressed in uh, Ghost of Frankenstein, it got a bit over the top. Whereas in Son of Frankenstein, he, he, he is decayed. You know, like when he does that <coughs> and, and coughs in the judge's face and he said, you already hang me, you can't hang me again. You know, he is so devious and manipulative and vile, but fun at the same time. You know, playing that little horn of his while the monster goes out killing the people that have done him wrong. Right. And that's why, you know, you go and watch a film like Young Frankenstein and, and a lot of people want to compare that to the original film in 1931. No, that is definitely Son of Frankenstein. Big time influences on that film as opposed to the actual original 31 film. Yeah. And the other thing that I'll, I'll give Lugosi credit for is is as much as everyone goes on about Carlos Frankenstein Monster, which is a masterpiece, and I'm not going to knock it, when people come to imitate that Frankenstein Monster, they are imitating Lugosi's version, not Karloff's, because it's Lugosi with a stiff arms up, walking along. Carlos, yeah, no, I, I yeah, exactly. We, we pantomime Lugosi's walk and in, in the stiff arms because Karloff never did that in in his portrayals. No, but that scene in the original Frankenstein where he's walking backwards and then slowly turns around and you see his face. It's just like, yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes sometimes there are no words for for uh, these performances and you know only Karloff could pull off uh you know being able to emote emote in that makeup because um you know I mean Glenn Strange was okay Lugosi Lugosi was handcuffed by a bad script uh by the time he plays the monster um, you know you know Universal were really stupid there because they know that in the previous film they'd put eagle's brain in the monster's body so therefore quite logically he would speak how eagle spoke and he's playing the monster so it was be a natural thing and i read an interesting thing that that maybe lugosi was punished for the poor reception of frankenstein meets the wolfman but let's be quite frank frank here if you get it frank um (laughs) That whole opening of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman with the grave robbers robbing the Talbot tomb is an absolute masterpiece. Oh, I love it. Of, of atmosphere and suspense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you don't need to see anything. Just, just as it pulls away from the, to- um, 
the mausoleum, you hear the screams. That's that's all you need. Yeah. No, it's a it's a brilliant. Uh, it's it, the set piece is fantastic. The way it's filmed is great. Um, you know, a but, lot of a lot of those the- a lot of those right. I mean, go back to the original Mummy, the beginning of the Mummy, where you only see Karloff in the actual Mummy makeup for a few seconds at the yeah. beginning of the film. I mean, you have the maniacal laughter of the the guy who's gone mad. And and that's that's the scene. That's all you 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 see bandages walking out the door, and now you yeah. know you know this guy's ruined for life. But it's so brilliantly filmed and acted, you don't need a whole lot. Yeah, and other than other than than him being married to Helen Chandler, briefly, that's what he's famous for. But that one scene has immortalized him. Everyone remembers Carlos' hand going down and the guy seeing him and that mad laughter. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, and again, uh, you, you mentioned him earlier. Again, Edward Van Sloan was in that movie. And, yeah. uh, you know, again, so many so many folks, came, and they, a lot of them came out of the theater uh, in the in the 20s to, to act in films in the 30s. But so many great performances and, and stars come out of that, that time period. We forget about a lot of the uh, a lot of the women that are in these films. Valerie Hobson uh, is in uh, The Bride of Frankenstein uh, taking over as Elizabeth, but she's also in 1935's Werewolf of London with Henry Hall. Yes. And, uh, uh, I- another underrated film. Oh, 100%. And what I find interesting is the remake of The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro, they conflate the story from Werewolf of London and The Wolfman. They give yes. they give that origin story, right, which is actually, um, you know, the, uh, the, the little boy werewolf in, in Tibet uh, played as an adult by Warner Oland. Uh, it, it's... Um, there's one scene in that film that I go back to it has nothing to do with with werewolves or monsters, and I, and I look at sci-fi and even horror as predictors of the future. There's one particular scene where they predict the doorbell camera. Yes. Right. So Henry Hall can actually see who's at his front door on this iPad-looking device that's on his table in his laboratory. I I was I fell out of my chair when I saw that. And I just maybe they had that technology back then, and we just didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> we just didn't know it. What I one of the things that I as as we talk about, you know, you, you don't know where you're going until you understand where you've been. I I still find it really really interesting that a lot of these films from the 20s, 30s, and 40s are continuing to influence filmmaking today. And my all time favorite film is the original 1933 King Kong. And so many uh, things were, were pioneered to from the cinematography to the stop motion animation uh, to all of that. And you look at the far reaching influence without that, you don't have today's CGI. No. And, and I think, you know, the horror genre is what pioneered all of this because you look at what Jack Pierce did and, and his makeup effects leads to Stan Winston, leads to Rick Baker and Tom Savini. Without Jack Pierce, we don't have, have that. No, we wouldn't have the practical makeup effects uh, that we had, especially 
in in you know the big boom of horror films that the 1980s were and i've watched now both um episodes of in search of darkness which is these two very very long documentaries about the history of 1980s horror and it is really really interesting to see the influence and and it becomes quite made up because you see a lot of these 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 early horror films on television screens in these movies it's really really interesting uh they're they're overtly paying homage to where they came from i think as well growing up as a a horror kid so to speak there there are some things that so leave an impress in your memory that they stay there like i remember i I couldn't for for donkey's years i couldn't, couldn't remember what it was i just remember it was a vampire running down a road with sunrise coming up behind him and he started smoking and thank God for Google. I love you, Google. <laughs> I really do, because it told me it was Richard Lynch in 1979's Vampire. Oh, and that's another so underrated to, film. So I had to hunt it down to see whether it was the right thing that I saw all the way back when I was little. Well, not so little. A little bit little. And it was, and... I thought, and then I thought, right, I want to do a piece on it. I want to do a piece on it. And as soon as I started putting my mind to it, um, and I sent out letters to people in the States, uh, then Richard Lynch died. Um, and they just all went painstakingly wrong. So, uh, the lead actress I wrote to, uh, I got returned to sender, mm. uh, you know, and I, I couldn't. All, all the key players either had vanished off the planet or, or had passed. So, it, it's, it's one of those un, unfinished projects at the moment. Well, I hope you do uh, finish that one because that is an underrated film. I remember. It's funny you mentioned that because I had a similar Google experience with that movie. Um, I had remembered it. I thought Julian Sands was in it. And I was mistaken, and but it led me down this this Google rabbit hole to find the actual movie, and I and I was able to find it and watch it, and I, it was just as every bit as as good as I I remembered it. Um, it's really interesting, you know the the, the vampire films uh, that uh, you know the classic ones that are not Dracula related. Uh, when you look at uh, the Hunger with uh, Catherine yes. Deneuve. Um, I watched that again uh, not that long ago. Talk about you know a microcosm of the 1980s in a in a vampire movie. Um, very stylish, very stylized, um, excellent, uh, excellent and tragic film. Early Susan Sarandon film. Uh, yes. Even though she's like lost her damn mind, um, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, I see some of your Facebook posts and, you know, I've known Anthony for a while now. It's funny how, how you folks outside the United States understand us better than we understand ourselves. Um, you know, from our politics to, you know, our socioeconomics and everything else. It's pretty, it's pretty funny. Um, the stuff you guys comment on and, and I read them and I go, yeah, well, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think it's funny, uh, you know, if you read any of Anthony's stuff, Anthony is is very plugged into what's going on here in the U.S. And yeah, 
he's not wrong. Um, so, you know, that's why I'm kind of, you know, I moved from California to Washington. I'm glad I live in a, a pretty progressive, uh, part of the country. So, but, uh, you know, to kind of sum up the, uh, the conversation, uh, Matthew kind of, can you summarize just kind of how you feel about classic horror and, and, you know, these, these great classic films, you know, it's, I mean, I know I can do it. I know why I love them. Um, but, uh, you know, it seems like, again, you know, folks of a certain age, it's it's our childhood. It's what we were exposed to, and, and we fell in love with these things. And the other thing, too, is, and I don't know if you do this in England, but, you know, as kids, we were all trick-or-treating, and these were the things we wanted to be. Yeah. Right? Exactly. That's what... And I still dress well, up as a, as a vampire on Halloween at my age. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know um for, for me when i watch a, a classic horror film firstly i watch it for enjoyment because i i do enjoy them secondly they are so multi-layered that they deserve repeat viewing so you can pick up on all the subtle texts and things that's going on within them because they're, they're like onions. They are so multi-layered that you need to keep watching them to, to get through the layers, to get to the actual core, um, which is what I do when I re-examine them. And then from the core, work your way back out. So then you understand the, everything that is going on within the film itself. So like, as I've spoken about earlier, I'm married a witch. I've said at its core, it is a horror film. And in that chapter in my book, I not only talk about the making of the film and what went on, I explain why it is a horror film um, at its core, even though it is classed as a romantic comedy, um, which did go on to um, be the sort of influence for uh, bewitched um, right with the, with elizabeth montgomery and dick francis in the 60s um it's just a shame that uh, veronica lake had such a, a tragic life really and which which ended due to alcoholism and what have you i mean could you imagine she could have had such a comeback in in a show such as bewitched right uh, even if she played, even if she played Aunt Agatha, which is no disrespect to Agnes Moorhead, but or something like that, you know, something could have revitalized her career. What I but, tend to um, do, uh, Matthew, sometimes I'll go back and and I'll watch something, not only to to see if I see something different that I hadn't noticed before. Sometimes I'll watch it and be hypercritical. One of the things that yeah. I I like to do is especially when I'm watching a monster movie, I start looking for flaws in, in the makeup. And you know what? Do you? Yes. And you know the crazy thing about Frankenstein? When you look at the monster, you look at everything about that character from head to toe, there are yeah. no flaws in Jack Pierce's makeup. And watching no. it on a 60-inch high-definition television in, on Blu-ray, I can find <laughs> no freaking flaws in that damn makeup. It looks real. The character looks like a real thing. 
there there's you know i mean later on you can start to see you know different like seams in in the you know with the prosthesis and and how they try to cover it up but in the early makeups there are no flaws and then so i start picking at dialogue and and that kind of thing and um there's a piece of dialogue in frankenstein that always bothers me every time i watch it it's it's when uh, dwight fry's uh character uh fritz is tormenting the monster and 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 the monster kills him and and dr frankenstein says you know he always did this or he always hated him like always the thing is two days old what do you mean always you know it's just little little words here and there and you're like okay yeah because i love like i said i love king kong and there's there's some really really bad dialogue in that movie um, and there's some really snappy dialogue too, but there's one particular scene as they're approaching Skull Island, they're on the ship and it's the captain, it's Carl Denham, it's, uh, Andero, Fay Ray, and, and they're all lined up and, and, um, Fay Ray says, how do we know it's the, the right Island? A mountain that looks like a skull. Oh yeah. You told me skull mountain. Like, really? This is the dialogue. Uh, you know, but I'm being hypercritical because I've watched the movie, you know, 400 times. Yeah. Well, my, my dad took me to see the uh, remake with Jessica Lange mm-hmm. when it first came out. Um, and when they killed Kong, I actually thought they'd killed a giant. I, I actually thought they'd killed a giant, giant monkey. And I, uh, I was inconsolable. because <laughs> I thought they killed a real monkey. <laughs> you know, Absolutely just... inconsolable. But the one thing with King Kong is I would really love for them to find um, the pit scene that was cut. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, Peter, I know, Peter Jackson tried, you know, he he tried to, you know, in his film, he included it in 2005. But, yeah, I'd love to see the original. And, boy, I tell you what, that the stop motion animation and the models that they used for that film, and I just yeah. watched it again the other night, um, are, are spectacular. They're fantastic. And I think, um, you know, I think the bottom line uh, to this entire conversation is that we can always learn something new about these these films and these stories, right? Because it's not just the film. It's the story. It's it's like you said, you know, they're they're layered. They're onions. Um, they're morality tales. They're they're all kind of lessons to be learned from these movies. But the other part of that is. Those films, even made, you know, in the 20s all the way to today, have far-reaching influence. They continue to influence filmmakers, makeup artists, um, digital artists, animators, cartoonists. These films endure. Exactly, yeah. And I, you know, and I, and, I, and I think it's wonderful because, you know, you get into these conversations about, you know, like music today, right, compared to music, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And I always maintain we're going to be listening to things like Frank Sinatra long after a lot of today's artists fall off. Exactly. And it's time. Yeah. It's just timeless. So, Matthew, how can uh, the listeners of the Get the Knack podcast find you online and find your works? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, and on, on, obviously on Facebook. Um, I'm, I'm easily findable. 
What's your what, but what's your Twitter handle? I looked for it, I couldn't find it. What's your Twitter handle? Um, I think I'm the Doctor Sixty Seven. You think? Um, <laughs> well, we're gonna find out. Um, on Instagram, I'm the Doctor Seventy Two. Gotcha. On Twitter, I'm the Doctor. Yeah, I'm definitely the Doctor 67. Look for the Bella Lugosi ring. I found it. I'm, I'm there. I'm all over it. Yep. Uh, it's funny uh, because <laughs> you're trying to hide your age, right? You're, you're the Doctor 67. You're the Doctor 72. <laughs> that's supposed to be <laughs> lying about your birth year. Well, you've got to guess which one it is. <laughs> Next one, it might be the Doctor 80. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I figured you out. Oh, Matthew, um, this, is, this has been a, a great great conversation anything you want to add about classic horror films uh and and the work you're doing uh if you want to read my work you can find it in we belong dead magazine the dark side magazine scary monsters of the movies magazine and you can order my book from bear manor media and it's on amazon.com and all, all amazons and uh, Barnes and Noble and all good bookshops. And it is called Where Does Imagination End and Reality Begin? Re-examining the horror classic by Matthew E. Banks. Well, definitely uh, be on the lookout for all of that. And, and you know, I'll, uh, I'll share some links with you as well on some of the other uh, things I've written. One of the things you might find interesting, I wrote, uh, I wrote a piece of all the misrepresentations of Dracula on the big and small screen. Oh, awesome. I'll give that a good view. Yeah, I'll send that over to you. I think you'll find it interesting because I think, you know, there's only been a few film adaptations of the novel that are accurate or even come close. And even the 1931 film is based more on the stage play than than the novel. And, yeah. you know, I mean, the bastardization of the Renfield character um, and, and the marginalization of, of Jonathan Harker in that movie are the two things that, that stand out for me. But as, as great a performance as Dwight Fry turned in as Renfield, um, you know, it's, um, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, Dracula has never been portrayed 100% accurate to the book. And no. it's it's stunning to me. But I'll send that to you. And uh, I, I recently wrote something on uh, – it's not a, a, as deep a dive as I'd like. I'll probably go deeper into it. But I'll send you something on uh, on the, something I did on Hammer Studios uh, that I wrote recently, inspired by Erin Chapman, actually, as we talked about the fact that she's only seen two Hammer films. So <laughs> – uh, I, yeah, that's I, shocking, Aaron. <laughs> it, it, yes, yes, and I'll make sure she knows. You know, I'll ask her if her ears are burning after being spoken about. But yeah, um, but uh, Matthew, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, you got an open invitation, and and when uh, when I need to know something about classic films, I, I know who to go to. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Knack podcast for my special guest, author and researcher and expert in all things classic horror films, all the way from deep, dark Cornwall, England, Matthew Banks. I have been Jerry Knack. We'll talk to you next week.